me in, in our services this morning, we talked about the tests that the children of Israel faced as they journeyed from Egypt uh, all the way to the promised land. So I thought in keeping with that general spirit, it would be helpful tonight for us just to take a test right out of the gate. Pop quiz. Now, I know you didn't know this was coming, and I know you didn't study for it, but you can't really fail it. So don't worry. I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and I want you just to answer honestly by putting your hand in the air if they apply to you. How many of you have ever been baptized? How many of you have ever been baptized more than once? How many of you have ever choked on communion bread at church? How many of every how many of you have ever dropped or almost dropped the tray of grape juice? How many of you have ever volunteered to work in the church nursery only to leave church in an ambulance? How many of you have ever stolen toilet paper from the church in the middle of a pandemic? How many of you have ever how many of you have ever been in church? And you're singing a song you don't know, and to get out of everybody realizing you don't know the words, you've acted like you were praying. The truth is that all of us know that church life can be funny, right? And sometimes in the life of the church, you just have to laugh to keep from crying, don't you? Uh, being connected to a body of believers can be exhilarating and it can be exhausting. Being connected to a church, frankly, it can break your heart and it can also just take your breath away. All of us tonight know uh, quite a bit, I'm sure, about what it means to be involved in the life of a local church body. And we know that sometimes that can be very, very messy. Sometimes it can be complicated. Sometimes it can be dramatic. Sometimes it can be any number of adjectives thrown in there. And all of us have lived through that at different churches, maybe in the past here at Sharon Heights or different places where you've been. And so I thought it would be good for us as people that are connected to a church to spend some time on Sunday nights, probably through the rest of this year thereabouts, studying a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was just, just a real church. It's the letter of 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul writes to a church that's filled with real people, facing real problems, dealing with real sins, but he also shows them real hope. And he points them to a real gospel that can give them not only new lives, but also a new way of thinking about church. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you, as you read 1 Corinthians, there is no topic in the life of the church that is off limits. The Apostle Paul pulls absolutely no punches. He says things that you would think, you can never say that in church, and yet here they are, in the Bible. And what I hope God does as we study this incredible book together over the next few months is I hope that God works in some of your hearts who maybe you would never say this out loud, but because of things you've experienced at the church, it could be that you're discouraged, you're disappointed, maybe you're somewhat disillusioned about the church. And frankly, there are many people in our church body that simply aren't faithfully serving and worshiping the way that they were two, three, four, five, ten years ago. I'm praying that God will use this letter to rekindle in us a love for his church. I pray that God would expose in our individual hearts 
places where we love our preferences about how church should look and feel and sound more than we do the gospel itself. I pray that God is going to help us lay down every single thing that doesn't matter and refocus on the things that truly matter. I hope that God uses our time in the book of 1 Corinthians to help every single person that calls Sharon Heights home to see their place in the body and to step into their spiritual gifts with joy and with confidence. I pray that God uses this letter to the church of Corinth to teach us at Sharon Heights that the most important adjective we could ever use to describe our church is not big or small, not contemporary or traditional, but the most important adjective we could ever use to describe our church is the word healthy. And so I want us to dive into this letter because above all else, I'll tell you from my heart, even though we are back to church, thank God we are, the last thing I ever want is for us to get back to normal. I want by the grace of God to see a church that is everything God wants it to be. And we're going to do that by looking at a church in 1 Corinthians that is a long way from what God wants them to be. This is a mess. But before Paul starts to sort through the mess, he gives us just a brief glimpse of why he loves this church as messy as it is. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 today. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 1. Paul, by the will of God, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Be seated. And I trust the Lord to help us this evening. Now, the church of Corinth, as we are going to see over the next few weeks and months, is a church that is in a mess. The Apostle Paul is going to spend 16 chapters with this church, working with them, talking to them about their problems. They are confused doctrinally. This is a church that is divided over different personalities and different preferences. This is a church where people are immoral. This is a church where people are pretty much literally sleeping with prostitutes on Saturday night and coming to church on Sunday morning, raising their hands, talking about how much they love Jesus. They've got real problems. This is like Tiger King goes to church. This is a serious mess. And yet before Paul deals with the problems, Paul goes out of his way to talk about how much he loved this church and to talk about how thankful he was for this church. And when I read these verses of Scripture, I think, man, how radically different this is from the way people today think about church. Because for many of us, the first time we see any kind of hint of a problem or frustration at our church, all of a sudden we feel led by the Lord to start going somewhere else, don't we? But Paul just, he can't move on from these people. He loves these people. And he wants to see God do something here that only God could do. And he had never lost sight 
of the fact that this church, as messy as it was, this church, filled with these people facing this pro these problems, they were still the special work of God in the world. As ugly as it's going to be in First Corinthians, Paul sees the real beauty of the grace of God at work for his people. Now let's be honest. For those of us that are connected to the church, especially those of us that are here on Sunday nights, we see the church in high definition, don't we? We see it in 4K. We see the warts and the blemishes and the scars and all. And sometimes those same old frustrations, those same old issues, they start to kind of tarnish our passion for the church, don't they? And they erode our love for the people that God has put in our lives. And they eclipse our understanding of what God really is doing among these people in this place. I mean, folks, when you see it under the same old preacher, and you go to the same old Sunday school class to hear the same old saint of God bring up the same old crazy idea from the same old passage that they harp on every month. Sometimes it wears on you, don't it? You hear the same old sister sing the same old special, and you go through the same old routine. After a while, you forget that this really is the place where God is at work in the world. But Paul had not forgotten. And what he does in these verses, I think, is he offers us a fresh perspective into his heart and into his mind, into the heart and mind of somebody who says, I love the church. I love the church. And I want to look at three thoughts, uh, maybe three aspects of the church that the Apostle Paul loves in this text of Scripture. And I pray, I pray that if your love, if my love for the church of God has started to be diminished, that these things would be real to us about what God is doing in our church. And the first aspect is the church and her people. Beginning in verse 1 and end of verse number 2. Now, 1 Corinthians begins with the name of the author, Paul. And we know a lot about Paul, I'm sure. But you have to understand, the book of 1 Corinthians is what's called an epistle. That means that it is a letter. And the Apostle Paul wrote this in the style of a first century letter. And I know we really don't write letters much anymore. We communicate with emojis and gifs or gifs. But uh, we don't write letters. But there was a time when some of us remember what it was like to sit down by our oil lamps and you know to pull out our quills and our inkwells and to write somebody a letter, dearest so-and-so. And we would finish it off by saying, sincerely, such and such. But in Paul's day, they would actually begin by giving the name of the person writing the letter. And Paul is only going to take a few words to introduce himself in verse number one. But the one thought he wants to emphasize about himself is his apostolic authority. You see that right away. Paul, who is called by the will of God, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He knows, as we're going to begin talking about next week, he's heard the reports of everything that's happening in this church. And he understands instinctively that somebody has to have the intestinal fortitude to step up and say, enough is enough. And Paul knows that because he's an apostle, that burden falls upon his shoulder. But as Paul introduces himself as an apostle, we need to keep in mind that the Word of God tells us as a church in Ephesians chapter 2 that still today our church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This letter is not to us, but it certainly is for us. And he says in verse number 2 that this is for all those saints who in every place, including Alabama, who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a letter that is for us. But as you think about a letter that is all about the health of the church, is there anybody in the history of the world that is less likely to write for the good of the church than the Apostle Paul? 
Because when you first see him in the Bible, what's he doing? He's doing every single thing that he can to destroy the church and wipe it off of the face of the map. The first time you meet the Apostle Paul in the Bible, the Word of God says that he is holding the coats of those men who would stone Stephen because, you know, they didn't want to mess up their throwing motion. The Apostle Paul is consenting to the death of the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul is converted, it begins by saying that Paul was breathing out threatenings against the church. He is literally living and breathing to wipe the name of Jesus from the record of history. But now this man, who was the greatest enemy the church had ever known, has all of a sudden become her biggest fan. How in the world did that happen? Well, Paul says in verse number one, he said it happened because I was called by the will of God. He said God's grace interrupted my life on the road to Damascus. And because God put me in Jesus, he put me in the church. And now I love what God is doing among his people. So I want us to think about our church for just a moment. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Do we have quirks and peculiarities? You better believe it. But let's think about our church. And let's think about our past tonight. How many of you, please don't answer this out loud, but how many of you have ever spent a Sunday morning coming down like Chris Christopherson? How many of you, how many of you have ever driven by a church before you came to know the Lord and saw those poor people parked in that parking lot on Sunday morning thinking that's a terrible way to kill a weekend? How many of you ever got drugged to church by somebody in your family or a girl you were trying to impress and you sat there and you listened to them sing those crazy songs and heard that preacher yell about heaven only knows what and then before it was over they passed an offering plate and expected you to pay for the privilege of being there. And you thought, man, I'll never be a part of that. And yet here we are tonight with all of our different thoughts and all of our different ideas about how the church should be and all of our different opinions and all of our different preferences. And even though we might disagree about some of those things, why are we here? Because God's grace interrupted our life. Because like the Apostle Paul, God's grace came to us when we were at our worst in our sin and He changed us and He put in us a love for His church. Have you ever thought about what in the world we're doing here? There are 2 billion people in the world who are going to live and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Yet here we are. And folks, every sermon we hear, every song we sing, every verse that we get to read and every class we sit in is testimony to the grace of God and His goodness at putting the church in our life and putting us in the church. But it's not just about Paul here. He also mentions this other brother by the name of Sosthenes in verse number one. Now, I know that Sosthenes is not exactly, you know, an A-list celebrity when it comes to Bible trivia. But if you go back and read first, or if you go back and read Acts 18, where Paul plants the church in Corinth, you find out that Sosthenes was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. He was, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but he was the number one Hebrew. He was the head Hebrew in Corinth. He made sure that everything down at the synagogue ran exactly the way that it was supposed to according to the Old Testament scriptures. And then one day, wouldn't you know it, the Apostle Paul comes in and he takes that guy's Hebrew Bible and he starts telling him about a Savior who was born to a virgin named Mary. And Sosthenes hears that gospel message and says, that's the one I've been looking for my whole life. And Sosthenes believes that and he ditches the synagogue and helps plant a church. But it's not just Sosthenes. He, he's writing this letter, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And as we are going to see, the city of Corinth was the least likely place in the world that you would ever want to start a church. 
the ancient city of Corinth had a population at this time of about 700,000 people, which was massive in the ancient world. For a little bit of historical perspective, the city of London, England, didn't reach one million in population until around 1830. This is a huge city. It was a cultural melting pot. It sat at important crossroads of trade routes. But by far and away, kids put on your earmuffs here, far and away, the number one attraction of the city of Corinth and the number one export of the city of Corinth was sex. And that's because in the city of Corinth, there was a massive temple to worship the false goddess Aphrodite. And there were a thousand prostitutes, men, women, and everything in between employed at that temple. And people would go worship by giving themselves to these prostitutes. And the city of Corinth developed the reputation of the sin city of the ancient world. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. This was the kind of place where a young man would go into town on Friday night with a pocket full of money and he would wake up on Sunday morning not remembering where he was, with nothing in his pocket, a face with a face tattoo he didn't remember getting married to somebody whose name he couldn't remember. That's the kind of city that Corinth was. The city of Corinth was so wicked and known for its wickedness in the ancient world that when in the time of the Bible when people would engage in fornication or immorality, they didn't call it hooking up or sleeping around, they called it Corinthianizing. They didn't Netflix and chill in the ancient world, they Corinthianized. And yet God takes this hellhole and he puts an outpost of heaven right in the middle of it. Why? To show his grace, to show what we sang about a moment ago, that our God really does save. That our God really does save real sinners with real mess. And there's a great scene about this in Acts chapter 18 when the Apostle Paul is preaching in Corinth, and understandably preaching in a city like this has got to be frustrating. And he's ready to give up. But the Bible says, the Lord says to Paul, when not in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God says, Paul, I can see the church out here among all these sinners. Paul, I can see the church that is going to grow up from all those lost people that are rejecting your gospel. I can see how I'm going to save them. And I'm going to bring a body of believers out of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, a little bit later in the book, Paul is going to say to these believers, he's going to say, you know, the unrighteous want to inherit the kingdom of God. He says, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say in verse number 11, and such were some of you. This is their church family. And we might think, man, that's a long way removed from our church family. Is it really? Or can you not look at that list of sins and say, oh yeah, I've done that. Oh yeah, I've been there. I don't have the t-shirt, but I sure got the scars on my heart because of what I used to be. And yet God takes sinners like this who are nasty in their sin. And the grace of God invades their life. What is a church? A church is a group of people who have been transformed by the grace of God. This church tonight, our church, the church of Corinth, is a trophy cabinet of what the grace of God can do when it comes into the life of a sinner who has nothing but their sin. So what we do is we look around at our church and we see the same old faces and we see the same old frustrations and we think about the same old problems when we need God to give us eyes to look around and see that every single person in here tonight has a past, 
And by the grace of God, every single person in here has a future. And we ought to see how God has changed lives and how grace has rescued the vilest of sinners. So ask yourself tonight in your heart, when you look around here, what do you see? Do you see that time in 1994 when you got out and voted in the business meeting and you didn't get the carpet color you wanted? Or do you see people that have been rescued from the brink of hell by the good grace of God? Do we see that this place is a product of God saving sinners? Proof that even when sin abounds, God's grace does much more abound. Why can Paul not give up on the church? Why can he not quit the church? Why can he not lay out of the church? Why can he not find excuses to walk away from the church? Because he said that is the place where the grace of God is not written about merely in a songbook, but it's written about in the lives of God's people. Paul loves the church because of her people. But I would say, moving further into verse number two, Paul loves the church because of her purpose. So Paul reintroduces himself to the church in verse number one, but then he begins to probably kind of reflect on memories and faces and the time that he spent with these people back in Acts 18 when he planted this church in Corinth. And as you look at 1 Corinthians 1, 2, there are two, there are three, but two of them are really the same. There are two main expressions that Paul uses to talk about the church that I think if we get them, they would change the way we think about the church. And the first one is the word church. He says, you are the church of God that is in Corinth. Now to us, the word church is not necessarily a special word, is it? It's a word we use all the time. How many times today do you think we've used the word church? Just thoughtlessly used it. And for us as English speakers, the word church comes to us from Scottish and from German and it comes to us from a Greek word, which is uh, kirikon. And it means the Lord's building. The Lord's building. But that is not the word that Paul uses in verse number 2. The Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1-2 is the Greek word ekklesia. Paul is not talking about a place. Paul is talking about a gathering of people. So you remember in Sunday school, right, when, when your Sunday school teacher taught you, here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up, and here's all the people. Remember that? Well, I hate to tell you this, but your Sunday school teacher was wrong. This is not the church. This is the church. Now, she was right about the steeple. We'll give her that. But the, the, the church is not the sticks and the bricks of this building. The church is the people that God has saved and brought together in fellowship and worship. And really, the better word in English would be the word congregation. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about an assembly. But if we're not careful, we are so quick to fall into this line of thinking where all we think about when we think about the church is the building to maintain or uh, the litany of, of programs or services that the church may offer. We think that the church is a building to keep up or it's an organization that needs to be sustained. And what happens is, when we think that way, we begin to think about people as if the people exist to come to church to give the money to keep the building up. Or the people come to church to serve in the volunteer position so we can keep offering you know, the buffet of programs that we do as if this is golden crown for Jesus. And that produces a toxic way of thinking about church life because then all we really care about is what we can get from people and not what we can do for someone. 
But the church, folks, is not a building. The church is not the programs offered at that building. The church is the people. And I want you to remember, a couple months ago, when all this coronavirus stuff was at its worst, at its worst, it was not your seat, it was not this structure, and it was not this carpet that you missed. What you missed are the people. You missed the people that pray for you. You miss the people you fellowship with. You miss the people. You miss the people who teach you. You miss the people who you sing with. Paul says the church can never be thought of as a social club, and it can never be thought of as just this family enterprise where we have a, an opportunity to platform our children. But this is the community of God. The church is the community of God, and Paul says that in verse number nine. When he says that we were called into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus. When the Lord saves us, he gives us the privilege of fellowshipping with Jesus. But I'm not the only one fellowshipping with Jesus. And I am fellowshipping with everybody who's fellowshipping with Jesus. This has been God's heart from the very beginning because our God himself is a Trinitarian God who exists in relationship and always has. He is a father who has a son, and the son has a spirit, and they interact with the father. The, our God is one God who exists in three persons. And when God makes Adam, what does he say about that dude? He says it is not good for him to be alone. He needs somebody to live with. And God takes that man and takes that woman. He gives them this unique ability to create more people to have a relationship with. And he says be fruitful and multiply and go and build community in the world. That's what God did in Adam. That's what God did in Abraham when he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. God did not just give Abraham a personal relationship. He said, I'm going to make a people for you to fellowship with. And on and on through Scripture, you find that same thought because we need each other. And I hope that's one of the lessons that you learn during all the quarantine is that we cannot be the church unless we are together. By definition. We have to be together. And I know there are extreme circumstances and extreme times, but in the very word itself is loaded up the idea that as God's people, we have to be together and we should value the assembly of the people of God. Then Paul says, not only are they a church, but then he says in verse number two, they are sanctified. And he says they are called to be saints with all those in every place who call upon the Lord Jesus. And, and the word sanctify and the word saint are really just different forms of the same word. It's the same idea that God's people are holy people, that God's people are set apart people. Now, you're going to read the book of 1 Corinthians, and I would encourage you to read the book of 1 Corinthians before we come back together again next Sunday evening. It's better than anything on TV, I promise. Um, but you'll find out this is a church full of people that are stubborn. This is a church full of people that are proud. This is a church full of people, and Paul will say in chapter 3, he said, look, you're babes in Christ. They are immature. How is it that Paul can say those people with their flaws and their sins and their present failures, how can those people be that and yet also be saints? The answer is because Paul understands the great truth of the gospel, that God does not call his people what they are. God calls his people what they are in Jesus. And he says, in Jesus, you are saints. In Jesus, you are holy. In Jesus, you are righteous. Do we 
My question is, do we look at the church that way? Do we look at our church through the lens of the gospel? Do we just see the failures and the frustrations and the drama and the same old, same old? Or do we see that for our church family, these are people that God says about them, there's no condemnation of them because they are in Christ Jesus. They might be sinful, but they are simultaneously declared righteous and just by the grace of God. Do we really see the gospel at work in the lives of the people around us? Paul does. And he says, you are saints. You are saints. When I think about saints like you, I think about the saints that we hear about primarily from Roman Catholicism, you know, St. Francis and St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and all that kind of stuff. I don't know where St. Ray goes. I don't know where St. Dennis ends up. But that's what the Word of God says. That we are, right now, saints by the grace of God, set apart for His glory in this world. We are His people to display His glory. But the third aspect that the Apostle Paul uses to fuel his love for a church that is very broken is in verses 4 through 9 and that is the church's privileges he's talked about her people and her purpose but now he talks about her privileges he says in verse number 4 that he is thankful for the church let me just ask you and you will all know the answer to this when was the last time you thanked God for your church when was the last time in prayer you went to the Lord and said Lord I'm thankful for my church but you realize if that's been a long time and for most of us it probably has because our church is just one of those blessings from God we take for granted, isn't it? There should be few things that you are more regularly grateful for in your life than your church. Do you know why? Because it was through the church that you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it may not have been the church building, but it was through somebody that belonged to the church that you heard the gospel. It is in the church that we get to exercise our spiritual gifts and serve Christ. It is with the church that we worship God both today and forever. It is with the church that we get to experience many of the greatest blessings that God has. It is with the church that we get to weep when we are broken and when we get to rejoice when we are blessed. And so Paul is thankful, and he's thankful for this church because he sees it as a product of grace, right? In verse 4. He says, I'm thankful because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. What do you get when the grace of God invades the world? At some point, you're going to get church. Because God is going to save sinners. And he's going to put those sinners together to worship. And you're going to have a church. And he comments on this. Because as they have, been, as they have experienced grace in verse number 4, they have been enriched in verse number 5. He says, I'm thankful because in verse 5, in every single way you have been enriched in all speech and all wisdom. He says, you are rich, wealthy people because you are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In Jesus, every blessing that God has to give is yours. In Jesus, every gift God has to give is yours. Because of God's grace, Jesus' life is yours. Because of God's grace, Jesus' death has become yours. Because of God's grace, Jesus' righteousness is yours. Because of God's grace, Jesus' past is your past. And because of the grace of God, Jesus' future is your future. Paul says, you are the richest people in the world. 
I read an article just the other week that said in 2018, for the very first time, when four previous Forbes magazine, or maybe it's Fortune magazine, one of the two, when they listed the richest people in the world, for the first time, Bill Gates was not the richest person in the world. Bless his heart. The richest person in the world had become Jeff Bezos, the guy who started Amazon. Because through the stock market and through all of the things he's invested in, in one year his wealth went from $35 billion to $112 billion. That is an absurd amount of money, is it not? That is more money than the income of Iceland, Cyprus, and Luxembourg combined. That guy makes like $150,000 a second. That is an absurd amount of money. So I want you to lay your present financial status alongside his. How are, how are you, how's the market treating you? Probably not quite that good, right? But now, stretch that out over 100 years. Who's going to be richer 100 years from now, you or him? Now, I pray that guy comes to know the Lord. I hope he does. I hope he starts coming to our church and tithe. Somebody say amen. But... But a hundred years from now, what's he going to have? And a hundred years from now, what are you going to have? Paul says if you could see beyond things as they are right now, you would look around and you would realize that you are wealthy in church. That even though these people have such a high opinion of themselves, and they do, as you will see, even though they are overconfident, even though they think so much of who they are, Paul says that really your estimation of who you are doesn't really come close to how valued you are because the church represents the greatest treasure of God in the world. You can go to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. and you can see the greatest treasures of our country. You can go to the Louvre in Paris, France and you can see the greatest treasures in the history of human expression. You can go to our national parks and you can see the greatest treasures in nature. But where do you see God's real treasure in the world? Where do you see it? You see it in, sitting in simple oak pews. You see it in cathedrals with stained glass windows. You see it here in Brookside, Alabama, where a bunch of sinners have called upon the name of Jesus and been born again and given every single treasure. So what kind of treasure do we have? Well, Paul says that we have been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Now, it's likely that the Apostle Paul is probably shoehorning in a little sarcasm here in 1 Corinthians which I appreciate because sarcasm is my love language, but he says when you are enriched in speech and knowledge, you're going to find out that this is a church that is obsessed with the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. And they are convinced that they have superior knowledge to other Christians and even above beyond and above and beyond people in their own congregation. But Paul is going to say you really have been blessed with the greatest speech there is. Why? Because they can tell the world about Jesus. They have the greatest knowledge that they could ever experience in life because they know the Lord Jesus. Have you ever thought about what you know and what you can talk about because you know Jesus? Have you ever thought about what you know because you know Him? You know where you came from. You know where you're going. You know what it means to have peace in the worst moments of life. You know where joy that is unspeakable and full of glory comes from. You know how a person can experience forgiveness and have assurance of the love of God. Paul says you have that because you know Jesus. Tomorrow, people will go to their job. And they will go and make more money than any of us are ever going to make. 
because they have degrees that none of us could ever afford. And they are going to look billions of light years across the galaxy through telescopes that our tax money pay for. And they cannot see through that telescope how a sinner can get to heaven. And you know it. Paul says you have been made rich. You have been made rich. But here's the problem in Corinth, and here's the challenge in our churches too. These are rich people who are living like beggars because they have been disconnected from the gospel. They've lost sight of the grace of God in every single problem they are going to face, whether it's division, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's confusion over what Christian love really looks like, every single problem that they have in their church comes down to their failure to understand and apply the gospel to their lives. But Paul is thankful. He says the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. That's what makes you rich. That's what gives you this excellent speech and excellent knowledge that the church of Jesus Christ is the place to look for proof Jesus was who he said he was and can do what he said he could do. It's living proof, proof of the gospel, living proof that Jesus is alive so that you are not lacking in any gift. He's being sarcastic again. You're not lacking in any gift. God has given you everything as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus. I love verse number eight, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. Paul, begin, Paul closes by emphasizing God's faithfulness. He closes by emphasizing the coming of the Lord and the Lord sustaining His people. And I love that because Paul says, would say to the church, listen, your church is not perfect. Your church has a whole heap of help and serious problems. But the Lord is faithful. And the Lord will sustain you. And the Lord is at work. In the end, Paul says, I can't give up on the church because God hasn't given up on the church. And one of the reasons God will not give up on the church is because the gospel that is at work in the church will not let God give up on the church. You see what he says in verse number 8? He says, God will sustain you, Christ will sustain you, and so that you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase guiltless means, really it means not able to be arrested. What Paul is saying is that when we understand what God is doing in the church, we can look ahead into the future and we can see among our fellowship the great host of people where God is going to look at them on the last day and say, all charges have been dropped. And as I started thinking about that, and I got to thinking about our church. And I'm going to tell y'all, man, the Spirit of God moved in my office when I was preparing this sermon. Man, I was worshiping like a Pentecostal with his pants on fire. I was having a good time in Jesus when I thought about this. I got my church directory out. And I began to look at faces and names of people in our church. And I began to think about some of the widows in our church that have walked for a long time alone. It feels like they're alone in a valley of grief. And I thought one day those precious ladies are going to stand before God and all the charges of their sin are going to be dropped. I looked at the faces of some of our kids who have by grace professed faith in Jesus and been baptized. And I thought those kids still have a lot of hard years in front of them. A lot of sin, a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty, a lot of living, a lot of ups and downs. But one day those kids by grace are going to stand before God and all the charges are going to be dropped. I thought about people in our church family that suffer and that struggle, and that carry heavy burdens, and ask hard questions, and live a difficult life of faith. And one day, they are going to stand before Jesus, who carried their sins to the cross, and they are going to hear Him say, Not guilty. Welcome in. 
all the charges are going to be dropped. I begin to think about how every single person that makes up our church, one by one, we are going to stand before this Savior who loved us. We are going to meet this Savior who gave Himself for our sins. And He is going to take the books that have the record of all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our mistakes and He's going to close it and set it aside. He's going to say, all the charges have been dropped. And if you would look at your church like that, man, that changes things, doesn't it? To look around and think, these people that I'm looking at tonight, this guy that you're looking at tonight, one day we are going to stand before the God who made us and that God is going to say, well, there aren't any charges. You're welcome to come in because we're His. And Paul said, when I see the church like that, God help, I can't help but love it. I can't help but love these people because Jesus loves them. And Jesus is at work among them so that in this journey of church life, one day, by grace, they're going to catch up to themselves. And they're going to start living like the saints that they already are. Paul says, man, I love my church. We're going to stand together today. and I would, I would just ask you how your relationship with the church is. We are not as thankful for the church as we should be. And what I would maybe encourage, challenge is not the right word, I would encourage some of you today just to, to pray right there in your seat, to bend over your seat, make you an altar right there in your seat, and thank God for your church. Thank God for your church. Some of you, if you would be honest with God right now, you discouraged, defeated, frustrated, and I'll be honest with you. I'm just going to be honest with you, man. Because this coronavirus stuff and how much it's changed everything about how we do church and how it looks and how it feels, I've been more frustrated and discouraged over the last three or four months than about any time I can remember. And it's so aggravating, I'm ready to get past it, aren't you? But man, not, not a bit of that overthrows what God's doing among His people, does it? The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. Why in the world would a stupid virus, right? Maybe we need to come and say, Lord, I've lost my passion and zeal for the church. And I want you to rekindle it by showing me this place and these people that you are working among. As we sing, you know how you need to do this. Lord, I'm going to ask you to do that for just a moment.